Hi, I'm Tracy. And I'm April. <laughs> this is Killer, Killer Spirits. Spirits. Welcome back. Welcome way back. <laughs> Welcome way back. Welcome back from the future. We have arrived. Um, we are back from a small hiatus. Maybe a little bit more than small. Medium? Medium hiatus? It's a moderate hiatus. Yes. And thank you everyone for your patience. Um, I actually had surgery. Took a little bit longer to recuperate than I anticipated. But guess what? I'm back. I'm better than ever. And um, here I am. <laughs> And here we are. Here we are. Also, I do want to just give a shout out because I had my surgery a while ago, but I had the best nurses on the planet and I literally told them I was going to give them a shout out. So here's your shout out because they were amazing because I was very, very nervous. Yeah. But um, I was slightly high and on uh, drugs. And <laughs> you I were don't... probably higher than you thought you were. <laughs> and I don't remember their names. Oh my gosh. But I will tell you a cute story though, because when they came to wheel me into the... Um, the operating room. It was so cute because one of the nurses came up and obviously I was very nervous, you know, and she was like, so what's your favorite cocktail? And I was like, we're talking about cocktails? <laughs> Hell yeah. So I was like, oh, well, I love gin, I love gin martini. Like that's my favorite cocktail. And she was like, well, I'm going to put three gin martinis in your arm right now. Hell yeah. <laughs> and I was like, I can, I can, I can do that. I can hang with that. That's, that's all good. It was just very cute. So, um, I just wanted to give them a shout out because they were amazing and it was a it was a better experience than I anticipated. That's I mean, surgery is never a fun experience for anyone, but you know, it's nice when you have nurses who are not mean <laughs> and they're yeah, understanding wants to be a nurse because I know they deal with so many people every day yeah. and they're so overworked and just to have them be so caring and personable was just it meant a lot to me. So. And I think when people are scared and or in pain, they're at their worst. So they probably see people that are not so happy. Oh, yeah. I had some interesting uh, fodder that I listened to while I was waiting to go <laughs> <That's> in. <right. laughs> there was some yelling involved. Oh um, yeah, it was very interesting. I'm like, I don't want to be here. Like, why are you screaming? <laughs> why are you screaming down there? Uh, so, yeah, that was um, that was not fun. But it's okay. I'm good. Everything's good now. And we're back. Good. And I'm excited because we have a very good cocktail today. It's delicious. It's, I've almost finished mine. I know. It's it's very easy drinking. It's very refreshing. And also go check it out on our Instagram because the picture is bomb. It's, Don't forget there's two ounces of gin in there. So Oh yeah. It's, it's easy really to easy forget. To <laughs> it's, it's really, really easy. easy. Okay. I mean, shoot, so. it's not even noon yet for us. <laughs> I know. It's eleven fifteen. Okay. It's a Sunday. You know what though? It, you can start drinking so early in the day. I mean Bloody Mary and screwdrivers or mimosas are considered breakfast. So I have no, I have no problem with it. I am one of those people that like, I'm, I'm not a good day drinker. I'm not really either. As you know, someone who's drinking during the day right now, like I know people will like go to the lake in the summer, go camping and they'll start drinking at like 10 and then drink all day. I can't do that. I can't. I will literally fall asleep. 
like I'll hit about 1 p.m. and then I'm done or I'm I'm super nauseous. Yeah, I'll just feel sick, yeah. fall asleep. And, I, and they keep going the next day. I'm like, how? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. They're made of stronger material yes. than we are. Amazing livers or something. <laughs> that might be. So today, our story takes place in Alaska. It does. And so I did a little bit of research about Alaska. And one of the things that uh, grows really well in Alaska because of the cold temperatures is blueberries. Mm, I love blueberries. So I don't think it's an official state fruit. I don't think they have an official state fruit. Um, but I'm saying it's blueberries. Hmm. So there you go. There you go. We've made um, a decree. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, they're like bears in Alaska. They love eating blueberries. Oh, yeah. Um, berries are like just a thing that grows really well up there. Okay. So makes sense. We centered this around blueberries today. And what goes better with blueberries than lemon? Mm-hmm. We love a citrus and blueberry moment. So today I made the Alaska Smash. And we started with a handful of blueberries and blackberries, fresh. Um, I guess you could do frozen, but it would be a little tricky. You could, but you probably need to let them sit out for uh, a bit. And then probably use a lot less than a handful. Uh, yeah, because it'd be real juicy. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then probably two or three sprigs of orange mint. Um, that's just because what I have growing in my garden. You could oh, use spearmint so or um, really any other kind of mint. Um, and then the juice of one lime. And then I muddled that together in the shaker through uh, either a half an ounce or an ounce of simple syrup, depending on how sweet your berries are. Ours were not that sweet, and I only used a half an ounce of simple it is not sweet, but it's very delicious. Yeah. If you like it sweeter, it just drizzle a little bit more in there. Exactly. Totally. Um, and then four ounces of Sif- Sip Smith Lemon Drizzle Gin. So the reason why I picked this gin is because if you're going with a citrusy drink, it is nice to have a citrus forward gin. So this specific gin, not only does it have a beautiful bottle, um, it is... A mix of botanicals that are all citrus in nature. Um, The tasting notes are, on the nose, a glaze of biscuity sweetness with an unmistakable citrus twist. On the palate, fresh, zesty, warming zing with an underlying hint of vanilla. Mm. And the finish is a light, bright, warming, licorice-laced finale. Um, So if you go on their website, they have um, serving suggestions and drink recipes and stuff. I just thought it was a unique gin. It tastes amazing. We're it not does. Sponsored by them or anything, but shout out to Sip Smith if you'd like if to sponsor you want the show. <laughs> <laughs> we love your gin. Uh, I do. usually just buy the London Dry, but um, yeah, the goose on this bottle is just beautiful. Yeah, it's a really nice label. Yeah, but the f- this flavoring of this is really nice. Very good. But sometimes I'm iffy I'm on flavored gins, but this is really good. Yeah, and it's not. Um, it still is juniper forward for sure. Mm-hmm. So it's still like your classic gin. It's just really lemon heavy on the botanicals. And also if you just wanted a gin martini straight with this, it would be beautiful. So good. Um, and then, so I shook that all up and then I double strained it because the blueberries and um, blackberries and the seeds and all the berry material, um, you want to strain that out because it's not very delicious for drinking. It's not. <laughs> um, and then I just... Split it up between two old-fashioned glasses with fresh ice and some fresh berries in there and a sprig of that orange mint. And then I topped with just a little bit of sparkling water just to kind of cut it a little bit. 
It's beautiful. It's so delicious. It does not taste like two ounces of gin in there. No, it doesn't. <laughs> this like is your We each got it one ounce. No. There's four ounces. Oh, shoot. There's four. That's right. Okay, yeah. Be careful, guys. Yeah. Because <laughs> I already, I don't even taste any alcohol in this. I don't either. I mean, I taste the, the beautiful biscuity lemon flavor and the berries, but I do not taste any, like, alcoholness. No. So, yeah, if you're doing anything with, like, a... There's also a few other citrus forward gins, like we looked at the Tanqueray Rangpour. Oh, yeah. And yeah. the Rangpour is a type of lime that they use in that gin. So if you find any gins that are like citrus forward, those are great for citrusy drinks. And I think I have tried the lime one. Um, my dad brought it over one mm. night, and it is really good, yeah. the Rangpour. They also have an orange one. Oh, I've never tried that one. So it's not just, um, you know, marketing or labeling. It's like really what's in there. It's really what's in there. <laughs> Go and figure. It, and if you use complementary flavors, it'll bring out those good flavors in your gin. Yep. I your love specialties. it. Specialties. That's why you need like 35 gins. I, I definitely need 35 <laughs> gins. And I probably in your might bar. have 35 gins at this point. Yeah. I have one gin that we've kind of used on and off that's just like hot. It's just hot gin. That's it. What is it? What uh, do you mean like hot in a bad way? I mean... It's not bad. It's just not like it's what I tried to make that gin martini out of. Oh yeah. You got if you're gonna have a straight gin martini, it's got to be a really good yes. smooth gin. Yes. Now the rain pour without the flavoring is an amazing gin to have a gin martini. The botanist, my absolute favorite gin. I've never tried the botanist. It is so good. So one thing that we've done. Lately, if you're not really a gin person, just try this. Because I was not a gin person until about two years ago. Mm-hmm. Just get a couple different gins and do a blind tasting and just try them and see which one you like the best. Because it's it, it's saying, like, I don't like gin. It's like, well, there's so many different gins. Right. There's definitely gins I don't like. But then I realized there's gins I really do like. Mm-hmm. So it just depends. Yeah, it's not like, you know. I mean, definitely vodka tastes different if you buy it with different brands. Like, you know. Yeah, but mostly vodka is going to taste pretty close to Kettle One vodka. It's going to taste pretty close to Kirkland brand vodka. It's going to taste pretty close to, you know. I mean, in my opinion, it doesn't taste close to Smirnoff vodka. No. But that's like it's all relatively, like, in the price range, the same flavor because it kind of tastes like nothing. Yeah. There's not really a flavor on that. Uh, But, yeah, when you get into gins or, like, whiskeys, there are so many um, characteristics and traditions and styles that they use that everything's so different like there are some whiskeys i will sip with nothing in it right and some whiskeys that are like gasoline to me yeah that i can all whiskeys are gasoline to oh me but <laughs> someday i here i'm telling people to try gin oh i gosh. have tried whiskey we actually did a whiskey tasting recently and i was just like eh. tastings are hard i just I i've done them before it. it's just a lot of warm whiskey yeah, and I can do I can definitely do a whiskey cocktail. I'm okay with that, but it's still not my favorite at yeah. the end of the day. But anyway, if you don't like gin, go give it a try. Yeah, explore. Trust us. And um this Sip Smith is a good one to start with if you're not a gin fan or have never tried it before. Yeah, I agree. It's a good um little wade into the pool of the gin pool. The gin pool. <laughs> All right, um, we are going to talk about Alaska today, as April said, and first of all, great drink, love it. Thank you. Um, so first of all, before I get started on this, 
I want to talk a little bit about missing and murdered indigenous women. Okay. Because it's an important topic, I think, to talk about. Um, especially in Alaska. And it's it's kind of the crux of this story, too. Um, so the Violence Policy Center reports that Alaska is ranked first among states with the highest homicide rates of women by men what? and is the most violent state with Anchorage as the most violent city within the union. I had no idea. Yeah. I would never have guessed Alaska. Yeah. So the state of Alaska ranks fourth in the nation for murdered and missing indigenous women, according to the National Crime Information Center. And most of the Alaska native villages are located in remote areas that are often inaccessible by road, and they have little to no local law enforcement presence, which is part of the issue. that's why. So the Tribal Law and Order Commission found that Alaska Department of Public Safety officers have primary responsibility for law enforcement in rural Alaska, but provide an average of one field officer per one million acres. Okay. So that's not helpful. No. There are currently that's really hard. Yeah, it's very hard. There are currently over 5,712 cases of murdered and missing indigenous women in the US. That's a lot. That's a lot. In 2008, the Justice Department reported that native women on some tribal lands were murdered more than 10 times the national average. And most often, their cases are overlooked or even outright ignored. Wow. Most of these cases receive little to no media coverage and the lack of resources, low staffing levels, and many times just basic lack of caring means zero police attention at all. And even if there is media coverage, most often the victims are portrayed in a negative light. What? Yes. So that can happen also. So today we're going to talk about the disappearance and murder of Sonia Ivanhoff. Um, and this definitely received more attention than most, um, which is good because it did shed some light on some things. Um, but this is one of many, many, many. So Sonia Dora Ivanoff was born on April 13th, 1984, and she grew up in Unoclete, Alaska, which is a small village in the western part of the state with about 700 residents. That's very tiny. Um I actually saw an interview where her sister was talking, and she said that she was basically related to half the town. Like it's that makes sense. It's little, yeah. And honestly, this is totally off topic, but I had heard of Unicleet before because I, my older guy and I used to watch this um, this show called Flying Wild Alaska. I don't know oh, if you ever yeah. watched it. Mm-hmm. That was actually set in Unicleet. Oh, yeah. So Sonia was one of six children. She had one sister and four brothers, and her family was close, and she was especially close with her sister, Christina. Sonia was beautiful. Like, we'll post some pictures of her. She was gorgeous. She was wicked smart. She was friendly. She was outgoing, and she had lots of friends. She was, a happy, she was just a happy child and a happy teenager. So she loved to be goofy and silly, and she made people laugh, and her family described her as always putting a spark into people's lives. So she was also a star on the girls' high school basketball team, and she was an honor roll student. When she was 18, she decided to move to Nome, Alaska, which is about 145 miles from Unoclate. The population in Nome is slightly larger with a little over 3,000 residents, maybe a little bit more now, like 3,700 or so. And Nome is at, actually at the end of the Iditarod Trail, in case you were wondering. Mm. <laughs> Not that it has anything to do with anything, but I always find that stuff interesting. Um, Sonia moved in with her best friend, Timory Tawarik, 
which is the cutest name. Timory is such a cute name. Mm -hmm. Sonia's dream was to go to school in Hawaii. So she actually got a job at the hospital admissions department at the Norton Sound Health Corporation in Nome so she could earn money to go to college in Hawaii. That was what she was really, that was like her oh, that's like a full trajectory. Yes. She's like beaches and sunshine. That's I know. <laughs> it is a 180, yes. Yeah. So on the evening of August 10th, 2003, when Sonny was 19 years old, she and Timory went to a friend's house to hang out, as we have all done. Yes. So at about 1 a.m. on August 11th, after having one beer, Sonny said she wasn't feeling well, and she decided to walk back to her apartment alone. Now, her and Timory's apartment was maybe three to four blocks away. You can actually look at a map. It kind of, like, turned some corners and all, but I'm just guessing. It's, it was walkable for sure, and it was probably about three or four blocks away. That's, that's so, easily walkable. Easily walkable. So it was raining that night, and Sonia was wearing blue jeans and Skechers. She had her identification, including her rec center ID, and she had her apartment keys on a chain around her neck. When Timory got home to their apartment in the morning of August 11th, Sonia was not there. And so, of course, she's concerned. She's like, she was walking home. So they, she called their mutual friends. No one remembers seeing her since the previous night. And on the morning of August 12th, Timory was starting to get very worried because she still had not come home. So she decided to call the police really to find out, like, was she arrested? Like, is she in jail? No luck with that. So at 5.16 p.m. on August 12th, she went to the known police department to report, report Sonia missing. Now, at this point, Sonia had not been seen for over 40 hours. So a lot of time had passed. Yeah. Timory called Sonia's family to tell them that Sonia was missing and she couldn't locate her. And Sonia's mom, Maggie, knew right away something was wrong. So she immediately called Sonia's older sister, Christina, who also lived in Nome, to see if possibly Christina had seen her. Or maybe she went to Christina's. Right, or maybe she went to Christina's. Well, Christina had no idea where Sonia was either, and she was extremely worried because it was not like her to not check in or to not be available to her family or her roommate. So on August 13th, three days after she had been last seen, the known police chief by the name of Ralph Taylor sent Officer Byron Redburn and Sergeant Droke to the apartment that Timory shared with Sonia. And they conducted a search. They took some of Sonia's belongings to see if they could find any clue on who she was with, where she had gone. But they didn't find anything that pointed to any clues at this point. Because, I mean, where do you start when it's just like she vanished out of thin air? Exactly. Nobody saw anything. I mean, what you're going to start doing is taking, you're going to look at her apartment and you're going to start interviewing people. That's all right. you can really yeah, do. Yeah, all you can really do is talk to people. Right. So the, ch the chief did call for a search and rescue team that included the local fire department. And... Like, tons of volunteers from the community came out, including her family. Mm -hmm. They traveled down from Euclid to look for her. So later that night, retired attorney John Larson and his wife, who were two of these volunteers, discovered the body of a woman in a clump of bushes near an abandoned gold mine near Dredge Road 5, which was a dirt road about three to five minutes outside of Nome. Mm -hmm. And... I've seen pictures of this road. It's not a well-traveled road at all. It's not paved. So when I say road, it's basically like a dirt road. It's basically a dead end. It's on the outskirts of town. People are not really going out here. No. So it was determined that the body discovered was Sonia Ivanov. She was naked, except for one black sock on her left foot. She had bruises on her face, neck, and chest, like she'd been struck by someone. And she had blood on her face. 
And there are actually photos of her barefoot and her toenails were painted pink. And I don't know why, but that just crushes my soul so hard to think that she had put this nail polish on her toes. And I don't know. I don't know why it makes me extra sad when I see that. But there was a pool of blood in the road, which made it seem as if she had been rolled off the road about 10 feet into the bushes. There was no visible knife wounds or bullet holes when, you know, at the first cursory glance at her. Um, also, her body had been outside in the rain the night before, which kind of assisted removing, well, didn't kind of, it did assist in removing evidence. So her cause of death was not immediately clear, but she was found. So Nome has seven officers and one chief. It's tiny. State troopers were called in to assist, and this would also provide access to the state crime lab. So they definitely needed help with this one. Mm-hmm. So responding to crime scenes outside in Alaska can be extremely difficult. I mean, roadway systems are difficult to navigate or they're non-existent. So state troopers could not make it to the crime scene until the next day. Right. In the interim, the Nome Police Department had to work really fast in order to preserve any DNA evidence. It was going to rain again. That night, and also wildlife was a concern. Mm -hmm. They documented the scene by photographing the surrounding area and Sonia's body, and they covered her body as well as the surrounding area with this visqueen plastic sheeting. There's pictures of it. I mean, there's just plastic sheeting everywhere, which was really smart because it helped preserve the scene and a lot of the um, surrounding area really well. On August 14th, 12 hours after Sonia's body was discovered, state trooper investigators arrived at the scene And after examining her head more closely, they did determine that there was a small caliber bullet wound in the back of her head, which was not immediately noticeable because of her thick hair. So after further examining the scene, they found tire tracks and a broken branch that had blue paint transfer on it, which was in close proximity to her body. So it looked as if the suspect had probably driven in, shot her, dumped her body, and then... As they were leaving, they scraped against this branch, leaving this blue paint. Lucky. So that was some evidence. Not a lot of evidence, but they had some. Right. So Sonia's body was flown to Anchorage for the autopsy, and on August 15th, 2003, Chief Medical Examiner Frank Falico performed the autopsy and determined that she died from a 22 caliber bullet wound to the back of her head. And the killer fired the bullet from a very close range. Falico found no evidence of a sexual assault. The medical examiner and crime scene analyst discovered no trace physical evidence, such as skin scrapings under her fingernails, foreign hairs, fingerprints, semen, or other DNA evidence. Nothing. Hmm. And this lack of trace evidence on her body was pretty telling. I mean, first of all, she was out in the rain, so there was that. Mm -hmm. But even so, troopers thought that there was a possibility that her killer had what they call evidence awareness. Basically, the murderer probably knew how forensic evidence was collected and was very careful about leaving anything. Hmm. So that was kind of a, you know, telling thing. So during the autopsy, the lar- there was a large bruise that was also discovered on her arm that occurred prior to her murder. So when questioned, Timory told police that the bruise was from a few days prior when Sonia was wrestling with a boy named Kunik. You look perplexed, April. 
Well, I'm just thinking about that comment you made. Which about comment? They think that it would be someone familiar with evidence collection. Yes. So like, you're pondering. Like law enforcement. Possibly. Gotcha. That's right. Yeah. And so anyway, th- so they, Timory tells the police that, you know, she was kind of maybe low-key dating this boy named Kunick. Okay. Um, they kissed a few times. And, but it did point into a direction. Like, okay, we have something to go on here. At least I can talk to somebody. Right. So they start looking into Kunick. And they discover that he has a blue truck. And okay. coupled with this paint transfer evidence, they're like, we're getting a search warrant for this. Okay. Okay. So they impound the truck. They search it for evidence. They found three rifles and a pair of sneakers that had what appeared to be blood on them. And there was also a blue tarp that fo- that was folded up in the back of the truck that also looked to have a large amount of blood on it. They also go hunting a lot up there, though. Indeed, they do. They hunt for their food. They do. So and in, if, you're in Alaska, for God's sakes. Everyone right. has has rifles or some sort and of shoes shotgun. And blood on them. Yes. That's not unheard of. So, yeah. They found it. Big whoop, right? Yeah. So they do interview him, though. And he tells police that he had been hunting, just like you said. He killed a porcupine, and that's where the blood on in the truck and on his shoes had come from. Mm-hmm. And he also said, hey, I was with a buddy. Go ask this guy. Alibi. Alibi. So the police do go um, interview his friend, and his friend confirmed, yeah, we were hunting at a place called Salmon Lake, and we killed a porcupine. So their stories did match. Mm-hmm. And... Later, the lab did report that the blood was not human. Oh, okay. It was animal blood. Also, none of the weapons found in Kunick's truck was a twenty-two caliber. Oh, okay. The tire tracks did not match the ones found at the scene, and the paint on the branch not did not match his truck. Okay. So, at he's first out. glance, he it looks kind of bad, <laughs> but yeah. he's not their guy at all. He had nothing to do with it. So, at this point, troopers were pretty much at a standstill. They don't have a ton of physical evidence that's leading anywhere. Nothing. So this kind of sits for a bit. Then, on September 6th, 2003, a woman by the name of Florence Habros calls the known police department and says she has information about Sonia's disappearance. Okay. Now, the reason this kind of took a while is because there was a fear factor. Of course. Um, so... It can be scary to come forward with something like especially, that. Especially, yeah, especially when... Gnome is kind of known for, I don't know how to exactly put this, but there's a history of sexual violence there, and they have not felt supported by police at all. Okay. And also, it's telling to know that the police the police um, force was all white. Okay. And they're basically policing a Native community. Right. So There's that, some mistrust there. There's not just some. Yeah. <laughs> there's a lot. So anyway, Flores does come forward, though, and she tells police that on the night that Sonia disappeared at about 1.15 a.m., she was standing on the porch of her house with her, and I've read it's her friend, and I've also read it's her sister. I'm not quite sure, but she was standing with the with a girl named Danit. I think it's Danit. It's D-A-N-N-I-T-E. I'm not, I'm not quite Denise? sure. It might be Danit, so we'll just say Danit. If I'm saying it wrong, I do apologize. Um, so they saw Sonia walk past. And Denise was a sophomore and an athlete at Nome High School, and she recognized Sonia because she'd recently watched her play in a city basketball game, so oh, she okay. knew exactly who she was. 
Um, Denise, celebrity. I know she kind of was. Yeah. She was very well known in her community. So Denise and Florence said hi to Sonia. They watched her continue walking. You know, Sonia said hi. She continued to walk down the street, and then a few minutes later, they saw a marked known police vehicle slowly follow Sonia, and then pull in front of her on West D Street. No. So the driver of the police vehicle rolled down the window, the passenger side window, and Sonia leaned in to talk to the person. And then Florence and Denise watched Sonia open the passenger door and get in. Florence said she couldn't see the driver, but at that point she did ask Denise the time, and it was 1.26 a.m. So see, not far from where she was. She was probably almost home. She was very close to home at this point. So at this point... Chief Ralph Taylor of the known police department is thinking, I've got a big fucking problem. Hey, Chief Taylor, the call's coming from inside the building. Yeah, the call is coming from inside the building. Hardcore. So he calls Eric Burroughs with the Alaska State Troopers to conduct the investigation because at this point, no yeah. PD needs to be removed yeah. completely. Yeah. So on the night that Sonia disappeared, only two police officers were on duty. One was named Stan Piscoya. And one was named Matthew Clay Owens. So the state troopers asked that both of these officers take a polygraph and submit to an interview concerning the events of August 11, 2003, when they were on duty. Simple enough. Piscoy and Owens, they both agree. They're like, fine, we're going to tra- travel to Anchorage. We'll take the polygraph and we'll be interviewed. And they were expected to arrive on the 24th of September. At 12.46 a.m. on September 23rd, which is one day before this scheduled situational, a known police officer noticed that police vehicle 321 was missing. Oh. Conveniently. So Sergeant Droke, which was one of the officers that searched her apartment, um, calls Officer Byron Redburn, the other officer, and tells him, police vehicle 321 is missing. Do you know where it is? And Redburn's like, no. I don't even think Redburn was not even on duty at this time. I don't think. Um, well, could it be in the shop? They check. No, it's not in the shop. So Redburn gets in his own personal vehicle and starts searching for this lost police car. Okay. And they're thinking, okay, maybe kids took it, you know? And his thought is if kids took it, I'm going to go up to the top of this mountain and look. Cause if kids take it like teenagers, they're probably playing with the lights, blah, blah, blah. Now, just as an aside, apparently the police vehicles were typically left with a key in the ignition and a key in the shotgun lock, but the doors themselves were locked with an electronic keypad. Okay. But if you got in, you could start it. Right. So, I mean, it's not out of the realm of possibility. All right. So, anyway, Redburn gets in his car. He drives up to the top of Anvil Mountain. He's taking a look around. He doesn't see shit up there. No lights, nothing. At 2.50 a.m., Officer Matthew Owens reports by radio that, lo and behold, he has found vehicle 321 in an old gravel pit called Bessie's Pit, okay, which is about three to five minutes from town. So Redburn starts hightailing it down this mountain, and not even two minutes later, as he's hightailing it down, Owens is on the radio again, this time saying he's being shot at, like someone's shooting at me. And Owens is the one that was supposed to go get a polygraph the next day. Yes, one of the two. He and Piscoya. Okay. Yeah, so Redburn makes his way down to Bessie's pit, again, in his own car. So he turns his headlights off because he's like, if someone's shooting down there, I don't want to be a target, you know. He parks near this large amount of dirt to provide himself some cover. 
He's like crouching down. He slowly makes his way around the side of the embankment near both patrol cars. Because now we have Owen's patrol car and then we have the lost 321. Mm-hmm. He's checking both vehicles. He's like, is Owen's like in here, like bleeding to death? <laughs> you know, what's going on? They're both empty. Redburn hears nothing, sees nothing. What the fuck? Yeah. So at that point, he goes back to his vehicle and he backs up toward the entrance of the road. And the chief had made it out by then. He's parked up there. And then, uh, lo and behold, here comes Owens out of the woodwork. He just shows up. The fuck? Just yeah. like running? I don't even know if he was running. It sounds like he just like walked up and was like, hey, guys. I don't know. So as I- <laughs> Oh, I forgot I called you. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Someone was shooting at me. Here I am. I'm back. What? Yeah, that was kind of weird. And I feel like three to five minutes away, you'd be able to hear gunshots. Maybe, especially out in the open like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So they start setting up a perimeter to try to identify who was shooting at police. Let's find any evidence, blah, blah, blah. In the morning, they send up a helicopter. They didn't discover anyone out there, you know, because they want to look around. Is there someone hiding out here? They found nothing. No one existed. No one, no one's existing. <laughs> so Chief Taylor tells the troopers, hey, we had a police vehicle stolen last night. Officer Owens located the stolen vehicle and shots were fired. He wants to let them know all the situation Officer Owens was not shot, but he was shot at. Allegedly. Allegedly. It's all alleged. The police tow this expedition, 321, back to the station and examine it, searching for any evidence that might lead them to who stole it. Mm-hmm. The driver's side window was smashed in, but the crime scene text found no incriminating fingerprints in the vehicle. Nothing. On the driver's seat, under the broken glass, was an envelope that contained Sonia Ivanov's rec center ID and a note. Okay, wait for this one. The note read, and I quote, Pigs, I hate cops. I hate every one of you. Sonia was just a person in the wrong place at the wrong time. I do not know her. As you can see, it was easy for me to take your pig car keys right there. It was not her fault. She thought I was a pig, and shit just happened. She was just a person, and I just wanted to see if I could could that night. Every one of you should be more careful. I watch every move you make. You leave me alone, and I will leave you alone. I will also shoot you in the head if if you get close. Oh, shit. That's the note. Not the most eloquent of notes, I must say. Uh, I got the point across. But, yeah, it's to the point. For reference... The Nome Police Department used three Ford Expeditions as patrol vehicles. They had they had two older expeditions, <clears throat> which was vehicle 321, our stolen one, and 322. And then they had a newer model, vehicle 983, and vehicle 983 had running boards on the sides and also a 911 sticker on the back. So on the early morning when Sonia disappeared, Officer Piscoya was driving the newer one, 983, while Owens drove one of the older ones, 322. So 321 was not being used, apparently. Oh, so maybe someone had stolen it and used it, right? Maybe. Maybe. But I don't, it wasn't reported stolen until like weeks later, so that doesn't make any sense. Oh, okay. But who the fuck knows? Weird. What they're thinking at that point is they don't know what's going on. Right. So when police first asked Florence Habros to describe the police vehicle that picked up Sonia Ivanov, she said it was the she said it was a new car, like quote unquote new car, and she said it had a nine one one sticker on the back. 
which is like 983. But later, she said the vehicle that Sonny entered did not have running boards, making it seem like the expedition in question was one of the older vehicles. Weird. Yeah. So, I mean, it's as an eyewitness, it's so difficult. It's hard, yeah. And also, if you're seeing police cars all over, sometimes our memories get mixed. You just don't know. So, it's kind of a mystery at this point. Officer Pascoya said he and Owens were tied up with a midnight domestic violence call for about an hour the night that Sonia disappeared. And when they returned to the police station, Piscoya wrote the domestic violence report and Owens left the station. Piscoya said he did not see Owens during the 2 a.m. bar closing patrols, but Owens drove him home an hour later at the end of their shifts. Now, fast forward again to September 24th, the morning the polygraph tests and interviews are set to take place Mm -hmm. in Anchorage for both Piscoya and Owens. So Officer Pascoya is the only one who shows up. He goes and does his Red thing. Flag. Officer Owens was apparently traumatized. Red flag. By the shooting incident that occurred the night before. Okay. He had a mental health appointment, and he couldn't make it to Anchorage. <sighs> okay, valid, but also fishy. Valid, but fishy. fishy. Yeah. Correct. I it felt exactly the same way. So his polygraph and interview was rescheduled to the 28th. Okay. Now, Alaska State Trooper Eric Burroughs was like, I don't trust this guy. <laughs> he actually flew to Nome to verify that Owens got on the plane. Oh, good. To get to Nome He's like, from actually, Nome to Alaska. I'm just, we're just going to be best friends. I'm going to hold your hand there. Actually, I'm just going to low-key escort you. Yeah. Which, you know, he did. So he made his way to Anchorage. So as for Officer Pascoy, he passed the polygraph. He conducted his interview. You know, now, is that... A hundred percent a polygraph. No, it never not. ever is. But based on the interview and the evidence that they have, troopers are feeling like Pascoya's in the clear. They're they haven't written him off yet, but they're not feeling it for him. But they're looking hardcore at Owens at this point. Yeah. They're like, okay, so let's just complete this investigation. Like, you know, we're not super focused on Pascoya, but we've done our business with him. But we're going to be looking at Owens now. So during his interview in Polygraph, he denied having anything to do with Sonia Ivanov's murder. And he failed miserably. Of course. Totally failed. So on September 29th, troopers speak with Officer Redburn about this stolen 321 incident, uh-huh. vehicle incident, situational. The three, the 321 incident and the murder were connected. And that I, it's funny because they actually were just calling it a 321 incident. That's really what it was. And they really felt that the murder and this incident were connected. Because. I mean, the note. The note, it's obvious. Yeah. Right? I mean, if they didn't think it was connected, I'd be really worried about their. (laughs) Investigator skills. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, And interestingly, there's Owens at the center of the 321 incident. So, of course, the light is shown on him. It's like, what are you doing? And also by himself. And by himself. And the story seems weird. Yeah. Which they also thought, because on, on October 12, 2003, investigators Hanson, Bill, investigators Hansen, Bill Gifford, and Eric Burroughs conducted a recreation of the 321 incident okay. using a rental car. So they parked the rental car in the exact position that 321 was found, and the broken glass from the incident was still on the ground, so it was actually easy to line it up. So from the investigation, they determined that the 321 vehicle had actually been backed into position. Okay. Which they could tell by the tire tracks on the ground and the vegetation on top of the wheels. 
which is kind of weird. Like, why are you going to steal a car and then you're going to back it in? That just looks like you've staged it. Right. It looks weird. Well, I mean, it could go either way, but to them it was evidence of staging. Okay. Because it just didn't seem right. Like you're, I don't know. There, there's a possibility either way, but. But wouldn't the intention of the person stealing the vehicle be to stage it? Yeah. Right? Yeah, there's that too. So that's why they're recreating this because they're like, we none of this is really vibing. At this First point. of all, I love their investigative, uh, like, method. You do? Yeah, of, like, setting it up in person. No, I like it too. With Yeah. Yeah. So. Looking at it in real life. Owen said that when he got to the gravel pit that night and located the car, he went to the front of vehicle 321, and as he was walking back to his own vehicle, shots were fired. Okay. Owen said he ran to the south. Now, it's really difficult to see unless you're really looking at, like, a map of this place, but think of it as, like, a big gravel pit. His car is parked in one spot. 321 is parked in another spot. And then he's running to the south. And to the south was a berm of rocks and a ton of abandoned machinery, like big machinery that was used for gravel pit operations. Right. A community services officer recreated this movement. So they set up the two cars. They had a dude come out, and they're like, okay, run to the south, right? So he runs to the south, and when he did, his uniform was covered in marks from the dirt. Like his whole bottom of his uniform was dirty. Okay. Owens had no marks on his uniform at all. Mm. Nothing. And during this recreation, investigators found the expended shotgun round, which is also crazy. Like, they didn't find it the first round, but they go out and they find the expended shotgun round. And they seize it as evidence. And they take some measurements. Okay. So it was 34 feet away from the spot where the broken glass was. It was a 12-gauge buckshot. Okay. That's loud. And also, from 34 feet away, there would have been buckshot in the vehicle, buckshot in own. Like, he would have been dead, Yeah, basically, is what they were saying. Like, there was nothing. None of that was in the vehicle. None of that was near him. Nothing. Or in him. Um, So, none of that was really adding up. Like, this is weird. So, investigators believe that the 321 incident was staged by Owens. So, he just threw down a shotgun shell and shot it with his pistol? Or didn't shoot anything. He just said or, he was being yeah. shot, but no one heard any shots. So he said he was being shot, but the windows were shot out of the car or no? I don't know. It was broken glass. I'm not okay. sure if it was shot or just broken. Hmm. Yeah. So on October 23rd, 2003, they interview Owen and Owens again. They're thinking, okay, maybe, maybe if we interview him, he might break and give us a confession. Sure. You know, let's sweat him a bit. So they're like, listen, dude, this is complete bullshit. Okay, this was an ambush. If this incident actually happened, you'd like be in the morgue. You would not be sitting here, you know, no way you would just like run to the south and that was it. Like what happened to the perpetrator? They didn't shoot you again. Like none of this makes any sense. And Owens was like, no, no, it's all true. Like that's exactly what happened. They even went so far as to accuse him of murdering Sonia and he denied it. And he certainly did not confess. (laughs) He did not break down and confess. So they had to let him go. They didn't have anything, but... They have a witness that places Sonia inside his vehicle the night she disappeared. Mm -hmm. He failed the polygraph. Right. And they're certain at this point that he staged the 3-2-1 incident. So they're like, we're going to get a, we're going to get a a warrant for his arrest. Right. On Saturday, October 25th at 6.40 p.m., state troopers arrest Officer Matthew Owens at his home in Nome 
Alaska for the murder of Sonia Ivanov. And he was held on half a million dollars bail, which doesn't seem like enough for me, but this was also 2003. (laughs) So um, they actually took him into custody sooner than they had planned because they feared that he was about to leave town. Okay. So he went to the bank twice on October 24th. And they also heard that one of his relatives called the airlines twice asking for flight information. Yeah, you got to stash him. So they, they, yeah. You lose him forever. They thought he might be a flight risk. Yeah. So they arrested him. After his arrest, troopers start receiving phone calls from other women who stated that Owen sexually assaulted them while he was on duty. What? So now he's arrested and there's some safety in that. And so people are actually starting to come forward. Wow. So at times, this is the stories they heard. So. Basically, what they're thinking is that he picked up women, mostly inebriated. He sexually assaulted them. He would take out his service weapon and threaten their lives if they ever told anyone. And he would tell them, no one's going to believe a drunk native female over me, a police officer. Okay. Yeah. So that's disgusting. And who knows how many times that happened. Right. But Sonia was was not sexually assaulted. And she was also not drunk. And, exactly, so troopers believe that Owens approached her for the purpose of assaulting her, got her in the car, and she fought the fuck back. And also, she was not drunk, and he thought that he that he was picking up a very drunk person, right. and he was not. And so, I think he got worried that she would say something, and because of this, he drove her to Dredge, Dredge Road 5, and he basically executed her, is what happened. That's terrible. And did not complete the assault. Right. So the but grand- he wasn't murdering the other women. He was just sexually assaulting Correct. Them. Okay. Yeah. So he was definitely wielding his power right. for a long time. Yeah. And I wonder if that was the first time he ever killed anybody. They think so, okay. but they don't think that that would have been the last. Right. Just based on his movements and yeah, activity. Yeah, people like that always escalate. Yeah. So the grand jury in- indicted Owens for first-degree murder, tampering with evidence, and official misconduct. The charge of tampering with evidence was related to the police vehicle. Right. Three to one incident. So nearly 20 witnesses testified before the grand jury, including the known police chief and five police officers. Florence Habros testified about seeing Sonia get into the police car on the night she vanished. And Owens's wife, her name was Trin Johnson, she also testified. They were getting a divorce. Okay. And were actually in a custody dispute. During this whole trial of his. And Trin testified that around 4.30 p.m. on August 12th, which was also Owens' birthday, oddly enough, Mm. he called her at work, and this was 45 minutes before Sonny was reported missing, and asked her if she could take their child. He said he needed to go into work because a girl was missing and, quote, it didn't look good. He told her Sonia's name and offered her a physical description of Sonia. Then he told her to keep this information quiet. So this is 45 minutes before Sonia, like, before Timory even came to report her missing. Oh. So that's weird. I mean, that's pretty indicative of guilt. Right. So, of course, Owens testified that he did call his wife to take his child early, but that it was on August 19th, not the 12th, and that it was so that he could participate in an evidence search, not due to a missing girl. So that was his story. Okay. Owens's defense attorney, James McComas, filed a motion for a change of venue for the trial, 
asking the judge to move it to either Fairbanks or Anchorage. Right. I think that's pretty standard for small towns. Yeah, because the defense attorney believed the publicity and gossip surrounding the murder of Sonia had tainted the jury pool in Nome. Mm-hmm. Well, there's not that many people to choose from. Judge said no. Oh, okay. He refused to move the trial. On Tuesday, January 18th, 2005, almost a year and a half after her murder, um, the murder case began against him. Matthew so Owens went that's to trial. interesting to me because... I would think the judge would want to move it just for appeal's sake. Yeah, I don't know what his thought was, huh. but he said no. I mean, I get it, but also, like, your appeal defense would be stronger if, because people appeal that. Right, yeah, and I don't know, it's so hard to know the, all the ins and outs of the the secret conversations that happen and the, yeah. the law and how it works. So I don't, yeah, I don't know, that was just his decision, but... Um, the prosecutor, his name was Richard Vobodny. I think it's Vobodny. And his team had no forensic evidence to support their case. So they sought to turn this lack of trace evidence, no fingerprints, no DNA, to their advantage. So Trooper Gifford testified that this absence of evidence is like basically what we said before, that the killer had some evidence awareness, mm-hmm. and, and that was telling to them. And when taken with all the other circumstantial testimony, the prosecution maintained that Matthew Owens was the only viable suspect in the murder of Sonia. Owens was on duty when Sonia disappeared. Florence Habris and her sisters, or her sister or her friend, Denise, saw Sonia climb into a police vehicle. The known police department was unable to account for his whereabouts from 12.53 a.m., until he gave Pascoya a ride home at 2.50, which was plenty of time. Which is and weird. the exact time that she disappeared. Right. And this would have given Owens the opportunity to murder her during that time. So Owens' wife said um, said that he told her a girl was missing, even before Sandy was reported missing, like I said. Mm-hmm. And all of that, the, it wasn't like one thing that pointed at him, but all of those things together pointed at him. And so the prosecution hoped the jurors would consider the totality of this evidence against him. Even though there's no physical evidence. Right. So the bullet that killed Sonia also had a rare rifling pattern of lands and grooves, and troopers found a 22 caliber pistol with a similar rifling pattern in the police station evidence room, which he had full access of. Right. On the stand, though, a firearms expert could not definitively match the bullet okay. to the twenty-two pistol. So there's that, which is not good. The state also presented evidence proving Owens drove to Coffee Creek, which is about 75 miles from Nome, not long after Sonia's murder, and a witness saw him burning items in a pit. Hmm. When they searched this pit, they found grommets from a pair of tilt jeans Eyelets from Skechers shoes, the underwire and other metal parts from a bra, four keys on a ring, and zippers. That's it. Sonia was last seen wearing Skechers shoes and jeans, and her roommate, Timory, did say that she owned a pair of tilt jeans. And she wore keys around her neck on a chain. Correct. Um, one of the keys the troopers found in the pit was similar to a key for Sonia's apartment. They created this replica to see if it fit in the lock. It did not, it did fit, but it did not open it. And so they believe that the key they found was her key, but that the heat had warped it. That was why that happened. 
So defense attorney James McComas told the jury that Matthew Owens did not know Sonia Ivanoff, had no reason to murder her. He pointed out the lack of hard evidence presented by the prosecution and suggested that the actual killer was Sonia's ex-boyfriend. Okay. With what evidence? Totally random. Random as fuck. So Matthew Owens took the stand in his defense and, you know, said, I did not kill her. The jury deliberated five days, could not reach a verdict. On February 28th, 2005, the judge declared a mistrial. Okay. When interviewed, the jury foreman said the majority of the jurors voted in favor of conviction. However, the circumstantial nature of the case made it difficult for some jurors to find him guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Right. Which is valid. Valid. I could see it based on the evidence. So... Owens again made the motion, transfer the venue to Anchorage or Fairbanks because they're going to retry his ass. The judge concluded that the combination of the initial pretrial publicity in Nome coupled with the publicity from the first trial did create a substantial risk that Owens would not receive a fair trial if it was in Nome. Right. But he did not want to change it to Anchorage or Fairbanks because those are much bigger cities. He changed the venue to a place called Kotzebue. Okay. Now, that's a town of about 3,200 people. It's about 184 miles northeast of Nome. And he, the judge said that a jury from Kotzebue, I think I'm saying that right, I hope I am, would be drawn from a community similar to Nome, which makes sense. Valid. Yes, where the crime occurred, that's obviously. Point. So the second trial began on October 17th, 2005. The state presented additional evidence of which it had only recently become aware. So they had new evidence this in this one. Now, it's kind of hearsay, but that's not, <laughs> but they presented it. So, Dealey Blackshear, that's a great fucking name, okay? He was, or she, I'm not sure if Dealey is a he or she, but I'm going to say he, um, was Owen's former counselor. And Dealey testified that Owen's landlord and friend, Charlotte Calandrelli, had told Blackshear that she saw Ivanov's identification and wallet in Owen's living room. And Owen's told her that it was evidence that he was going to turn in. So why would he have huh. that? So, yeah, that's odd. So you said it was his counselor. Does that mean like a therapist? That's what I'm thinking. Or like his counsel, like his lawyer. No, I think it was okay, um, like a therapist. I think it was like a therapist. Okay. Yeah. Um so Charlotte Calandrelli did also, Calandrelli, yeah, I want to make sure I'm saying her name right. She did also testify and then denied ever having this conversation with Dealey Blackshear. That's rough. So, like I said, kind of hearsay. Yeah. You know? We've learned a lot about hearsay lately. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, it's out there. Yeah. And it was part of evidence at that point. So in his closing argument, defense attorney McComas told the jury that the state offered nothing more than could have, would have, and might have. McComas said, quote, the state didn't even come close to prove without a reasonable doubt that Matt Owens is guilty. In this case, though, second trial, jury did not agree with his defense attorney. And after deliberating for three days, the jury found Matthew Owens guilty of the first degree murder of Sonia Ivanov. Jurors also found Owens guilty of evidence tampering, and the judge sentenced him to 99 years in prison. For the 3-2-1 incident or for her clothes and 
wallet. I'm not sure. It just oh, says okay. evidence tampering, but I would assume that it's it probably one or both. Um, so he was sentenced to 99 years in prison, and his attempt to appeal his conviction failed. Oh, okay. Yes. So he is now in prison for her murder. Bye. In late 2005, Sonia Ivanov's family settled a wrongful death suit against the city of Nome. The complaint filed by the Avanov family said that the city should have known that Owens would have been a danger to the women living in Nome. So get this, in 1997, then-police chief Milton Haken actually refused to hire Owens, citing his lack of character. And despite knowing this, about this assessment of Owens, the new police chief hired him in 2000. Mm. Shouldn't have. So the murder of Sonia Ivanov did shed some light on the repeatedly ignored reports of sexual assault by Alaska Native women in Nome. In fact, Nome hired a retired police chief from Virginia, and he actually brought in two cold case detectives to sift through a decade's worth of sexual assault reports. And what they found was that time after time, the report showed that rapes and other sexual crimes went completely uninvestigated, and sometimes the police never even bothered to interview the victim or the suspect. What? Nothing. These reports just sat there, and no one did shit with it. That's wild. So the police chief, Robert Estes, announced that he and his staff planned to review 460 sexual assault cases going back almost a decade and a half. This is not a very large town. Guys. The Nome City Council did not want to dredge up old cases. We just want to look forward. Let's not do this. I'm sure the victims don't feel that way. Yeah, so they actually made his job very difficult, and he he gave up. He he quit, and he returned to Virginia. He's like, I can't do this because he had zero support from city council at all. Oh. Also, um, I read an article uh, who's recently. On the city council, all white people, and no native representation at all. And except very recently, there has been. Okay. Within I would say the last five years, that's changing, but it's slow. It's very very slow. Weird. So on April 27th, 2007, the Sonia Ivanov bill was signed into law, and the law mandates a maximum sentence for first-degree murder to any officer who murders someone while under duty. So, I mean, is it helpful? Not, I mean, I guess, but it's... Well, it's it's not helpful in the prevention of... No. Murder. No, not at all. So, I mean, it's, it's terrible. And also, from what I read, that... There's still all of these sexual assault cases that are not being investigated there. I don't like that. And it, it's not just there. Mm-hmm. You know, so many places. I mean, this whole thing about, oh, people need to raise money so that, you know, we can, you know, go do DNA testing on all of these rape kits that we have. And it's like, the fuck? Why should the community have to raise money for something? This should be done. Yeah. You know, that makes me angry. But, I mean, and some of it, there's not even, it's just sitting there. Nobody's doing anything. That's sad. So, yeah, that was the disappearance and murder of Sonia Ivanov. It's completely gut-wrenching. And just the, to me, it is, you know, I've always trusted law enforcement in that way. And most of us do. Um, but not, we shouldn't trust blindly. 
is what I'm saying. I don't trust anybody. I don't trust anybody anymore. So <laughs> unless you've um, proven your trustworthiness, you're on, you're on, uh, it's short for me. Yeah. And I, and I think not just in this situation, but just so many situations, the abuse of power. Oh, it's um, disgusting. And it's, it's so sad and terrifying. I think it's important to, to shed light on it. And so I people agree. are aware and, and see it, but yeah, well, make sure you check out our Instagram because I'm going to post pictures of her. She was beautiful um, and very, very loved. So that's our story today. It's a sad one. That is a sad one. Yeah. But thank you guys so much for listening. We have more content coming for you. We do. We're, we're cooking things up. We have some, like, travel plans for content. We do. We just made travel plans today. Yeah. We're gonna we were gonna go check out some places that are haunted that are actually really close to us that we can stay there overnight. And then we're gonna give you our experiences. Yeah, we should do that. I'm trying to think because we already have a vacation planned. Yeah. It'll be in a couple months. You know, we just <laughs> want to do all the things. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's so hard. So we really do a lot. We do a lot and we want to do a lot more. So thank you guys. You want to tell them where to find us? Oh, yeah. If you'd like to email us, uh, we're at killerspiritspod at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at killerspiritspod where we post our drink pictures and pictures from the episode. Um, We're also on TikTok at killerspiritspod. What else? What else? What else? Oh, we have a Patreon. Um, If you're still interested in getting the first 50 recipes... From the first 50 shows, um, I did put together a recipe book that is available to our Patreons at the lowest level. So if you would like to pay like your $5, you can um, get full access to our recipe book. It's so beautiful, too. It really is. You can print it up on a color printer and just have it in your yes. little bar. The pictures are amazing. Even I'm us- utilizing it because I forget yeah. what we do. Oh, I totally you know? forget. I listened to some of our old episodes recently, which sounds kind of like weird. But I still laugh at all of our jokes <laughs> because I completely forget what we've even talked about. I have no idea. I'll forget five minutes from now what I so said. So I'll go back and listen. And I'm like, damn, we're kind of funny. <laughs> that was a good episode. Oh, my God. That's so funny. Well, yeah. And if you guys have any ideas or you want to hear an episode, please let us know because we always like to hear your ideas. We love inspiration. We totally do. And thank you so much for listening. We love you guys. Bye. Bye.